commandment and his degree drew, drew near to be put in execution. So for six chapters now, we have been anticipating this day. We have heard 12th month, 13th day, 12th month, 13th day, 12th month, 13th day, over and over and over. This was the day that Haman uh, sought by divination. Remember, they cast the lot or the pure, the dice. They cast those to figure out, like, hey, let's have the spirit world tell us what day this is. And the lots fell and told them, here's the day, 12th month, 13th day. So this was the day they picked, and they made a decree. We're going to eliminate the Jewish people, plunder them, commit genocide on this day. So then, chapters later, there is this, this big windfall for the Jewish people, and they're able to actually get a decree for themselves that they can defend themselves on this day, the 12th day, the 13th month. So everything's moving in this direction. This is the big day. What's going to happen? Are there more enemies? And there are Jewish people, and the Jewish people, they, they, they get squashed. Are the Jewish people, are they able to, to hold their own? What's going to happen on this day? And here it is. In that day, the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. So we entitled this series, Esther, the God of Great Reversals, because of this verse, that here they wanted, the enemies wanted to uh, conquer the Jews, but it was turned to the contrary. The tables were flipped. It was a great reversal that God accomplished that the Jewish people were actually able to win on this day. Now let me stop for a moment. Part of what makes this story so much fun to read, uh, to study, to preach, is because of the way it's told. It is told in such a way that there are all of these plot twists, and frankly, there's a ton of suspense in the story of Esther. Mordecai uncovers this assassination plot, this assassination attempt, and then you're left wondering, like, is he going to get promoted? Is he not? Esther says, okay, I'll go, you know, declare before the king that my people need to be saved. If I perish, I perish. Is she going to die or is she not? There's this cliffhanger. You're left with Haman leaving this banquet, and he's saying, I'm going to kill Mordecai tomorrow. Construct the gallows tonight. Is Mordecai going to die or is he not going to die? There's all this suspense and drama and all these cliffhangers. And then you get to finally the climactic day, right? The 12th day, the 13th month. What's going to happen? It's just kind of like blah, like one verse. Like there it is. There's no, there's no drama. Uh, there's, there's no suspense. Here's the day. And they wanted to conquer the Jews, but the Jews turned the tables, and they were able to do this. And some have, have taken this and compared this to our life in Jesus, which I think is fair. The reason that this day is not very dramatic in chapters 9 and 10, don't read in a suspenseful way, is because this day was never in question. If you remember chapter number 5, Mordecai had told Esther, Esther, I don't know, girl. Maybe you're in the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe God's going to use you. Maybe you should step up and he'll take this and he'll use it for his glory. Maybe you'll die. I don't know. But then he said this, I know that deliverance is going to come. I don't know how God's going to work it out. And I, I don't know exactly the path he'll take. But I know when we get to that day, the deliverance is going to come. So the end has never been in doubt. From the narrator's perspective, from Mordecai's perspective, from Esther's perspective, the end has never been in doubt. There's no suspense on this. There's no drama on this. We know that God's going to do this. It's the messy middle that's been in doubt, right? It's, it's the middle that's all the suspense, and we have no idea how he's going to do this. And if you take this and apply it to our life in Christ, it's very fitting, because for us, the end is not in doubt, right? Alan just sang about, 
I know that, that, you know, that voice is going to call my name and that there's a, a resurrection that awaits me. I know that there's eternity. I know that there's life with Jesus and a glorified body and, and glory will be mine and there's a, a heaven that will, that will be mine to enjoy. That's not in doubt at all, but today, the middle, right, that's messy and that's, that's really squishy sometimes. It's, it's in the middle of the story that it looks like the enemies are, are succeeding and God's people are losing. It's in the middle of the story that there's all these plot twists and turns. And it's in the middle of our stories that we get bad news and diagnosis and we lose our jobs. And it seems like the people of God flourish and get promoted while I have nothing. It's in the, it's in the middle of our story that there's all these question marks and, there, and there's all of these things that plague us. And oftentimes we, we can't figure it out. But you have to know that the end is not in doubt, right? You have to know, just like they knew, at the end, God wins. In the end, God keeps his promises. In the end, God flexes his muscles. And while today may be messy for you, and while today may be painful for you, if you're a Christian, you can know, I'm not exactly sure the, the course that God will chart for my life, but I do know that the end is certain. I can rest in that, right? And the narrator knows this. So you come to this day, and it's not very suspenseful. We've known all along that God was going to deliver us, so they do. And here's a little bit of how this happened, verse 2. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for fear fell upon them, on all the people. And the rulers of the provinces, the lieutenants, the deputies, the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So what happens is... The Jews triumph, uh, the, the fear falls on the people that they see how God's orchestrating this, how God has promoted Mordecai, how this new decree has come, and now they're a little bit skittish and they step back, whereas the people of God are stepping forward in boldness and faith, and we see that God's working on our behalf, and then there's all of these rulers, these governmental help that decide we're going to help the Jews because the fear of Mordecai falls on them. We're not entirely sure what that means, but nevertheless, there's, there's respect. They see the, the way the dominoes are falling, and so they begin to help the Jews. We don't know if they help them with intelligence, hey, FYI, you know, Bobby over here wants to kill you. He's stashing a weapon, you know, under his mattress. We don't know if they helped him with military support, if financially they gave them, you know, something that they needed. Maybe D all of the above, but nevertheless, they had help. They had wind in their sails on this day. Verse number four, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. Now, a lot of people have looked at this portion of the text and said, man, that strikes me as weird. You know, normally when the people of God are, are conquering or God's working on their behalf, it's the fear of God falls on them, right? You look at the story of Jericho. They walk up. And Rahab the harlot is in the city and she's like, oh, we heard of you and we heard what God does for you and how great your God is and how he works on your behalf. But this story is all about Mordecai. Mordecai's greatness, Mordecai is exalted, Mordecai's fame goes out. The fear of Mordecai falls on them. Mordecai, Mordecai, Mordecai. There, you know, there's still no God in any of this text. And I would point out to you, I think from this text, that divine sovereignty and human agency work together in the scriptures. So you're going to come to some places in Scripture where there's divine sovereignty and God doing, 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 and flexing his muscles, is, it runs first and foremost. You're going to come to other places in the Scripture where human agency runs first and foremost. Now this one, admittedly, is human agency. 
that, that Mordecai is doing and, and, and what Mordecai plans and what Esther does and her decree. And the divine sovereignty is just implied. It is not explicit at all. But the human agency is. And the reason I, I bring this to you is because you have to understand as a student of the scriptures that a lot of people have got off kilter by emphasizing one of these more than the other or not, not striking the proper balance. There, there's a group of people that will take divine sovereignty and say, look, here in the scriptures, you know, God's in charge, God's in control, God's sovereign, God does it, God takes care of it, God's in the details, God has it handled. And that's true. But there's another group of people that will emphasize human agency. And we'll say, look, you know, God expects you to do something. Don't just sit there and pray all the time. You have to do something, and you, you have to get in gear, and you have to pray, and you need to share your faith, and he expects you to open your mouth. He expects you to believe on him and, and to make that decision and they emphasize human agency. And the point is that both of those are presented in Scripture, and those are two pedals on a bike, okay? Those two pedals work together to, to make the gospel go round, more or less. That you, you, if you take one and just run with it to the neglect of the other, you'll get in a lot of trouble. You'll find yourself in a conundrum theologically because both are presented. But in this particular text, we see a lot of human agency, human agency, human agency. Here's what they are doing. Here's what they are planning. Here's, here's the decrees they're signing into law. And that's fair. The human agency is required. God, God gives us a choice, and we have to choose. Verse number five. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction. And they did what they would unto those that hated them. So for nine months now, the enemies of the Jews have had a chance to change their mind. And you come to the fateful day, and they have not changed their mind. And the Jewish people know it's our life or theirs. There's no prison option, okay? That's a, a relatively modern invention, mass incarceration. It, that's, that's extremely expensive to do, and this would have been, not only was the infrastructure not there for them to be able to do this, but it was cost prohibitive to, to just incarcerate people and keep them alive. The, the way it went down is more or less, if, if you do something wrong, then, then you're executed. If you don't, then you're not executed. That, that's the way it went down. And, and some have called this rough justice. I think that's a fair term. This is just because it is, it's, it's you or us. Like, you're going to kill me if I don't kill you. This is self-defense. So this is rough, but it is, it's, it's, it's just as well. Verse number 6, And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. I will point out to you that while the law in, in chapter 8 permitted the Jews to kill women and children, we have no record of that. I'm not saying they never did, but we have no record of that. It's always they killed men, 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 which seems to indicate uh, that that's, that's what happened. So in the palace, we'll look at the province as a whole, the kingdom as a whole in a minute, but in the palace, 500, and then it's going to give us 10 names, which it's always a joy to read 10 ancient names to you. So here we go. I'll read them fast and act like I know how to pronounce them. Parshendatha and Dalphan and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashada, a.k.a. Parmesan cheese is how I think of him, and Erisai and Eridai, who had to have been twins, and Vahazetha. And here's why you have these ten names. Why do you just give me ten names? These are the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews they slew. So Haman had died, but we learn that Haman's ten sons now die. So the ancient hostility that Haman had shared in, right? Haman was an Agagite, and the Agagites had been the, the longtime nemesis and enemy of the Jews for centuries. And apparently that antipathy was passed on from Haman to the boys. 
And you could imagine if my dad has, has taught us and inculcated us with that you're our enemy and that we want to kill you, and he makes a decree, and then all of a sudden you hang him. And remember, they hung him on the gallows that he constructed in his backyard. Now you just hung my dad in my backyard. I go to sleep at night, and I see him you know, hanging from my window. You can imagine there's a bit of hostility and that they're going to exact their revenge. And apparently that was the case. And so there's 500 men, and there are also the 10 sons of Haman, all 10 of his sons, want to step up and fight the Jews, and they are killed as well. But, verse number 10, on the spoil they laid not their hand. We'll come back to that because that is emphasized several times in this text, but it's an important point. They were permitted to take the plunder, but they did not. Now we're going to approach the portion of Esther that nobody likes to talk about, and it makes everybody squeamish. And I'm just going to call it, there's still more work to be done. Here we go, verse 11. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace and the ten sons of Haman. So Esther, just, to, just an update for you, okay? Been a, been a solid day. We were able to eliminate 500 people that wanted to kill you and all ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition, and it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request further, and it shall be done? So he asked her two questions. Esther, uh, memo, okay, uh, 500 people have been killed, Haman's sons are dead, and we're going to find out, you know, how many people around the kingdom as a whole, they'll answer that in a minute, but also Esther, what's your request? Hey babe, been a solid day, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> you have any other requests? Your wish is my command? And here's what Esther says. If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. All right? This is the side of Esther you will never see in flannel graph in Sunday school. Okay? <laughs> the second grade girl may get like Esther too, you know, dress up, beauty pageant, you can be a queen, tiara. She may get Esther five, dinner party, you know, make a request. But normally, Esther 9 is not represented. Because here's how the conversation goes. Hey, babe, anything else I can do for you? Yeah, two things. One, are the 10 sons, I know they're dead, but I would, li I would like them to be like publicly impelled on a pole so everyone can see them. And then like, let's make some human shish kebabs. Number two, uh, I'd like to kill some more people tomorrow. Could we, could we take the decree? I know it was just today, but could we make another decree and just an addendum and extend this and kill some more people tomorrow? Okay, that's what she says. Like it's, it's, it's very black and white. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? That's the million-dollar question. This, this seems a little bit gruesome, okay? And there are basically two thoughts, and people debate long and hard. And I'm not even going to give you the answer. You can debate it, you know, in your group or something. There are two thoughts. Thought number one is that Esther is vindictive. Uh, one commentator I read called her, what do you call her? A sophisticated J.L., Jael was the woman who deceived the man and put a temple or a, a spike through his temple and killed him in a tent. Remember her in the Old Testament? Called her a sophisticated Jael. You know, she's deceitful and she's malicious and she's vindictive and she just wants to, you know, she's out for blood. She's bloodthirsty. Thought number two is that she's not vindictive, but she's preemptive. And that she's wise and shrewd and she knows there's still pockets of resistance around 
around the empire, but especially in the capital. And she knows that while we have cleaned house to a degree, there's still quite a few more people that are plotting our destruction. And they're in their warehouse, you know, making, making vest bombs. And, if, and they're going to come after us and, and kill us. And if, and if we don't get an extension on this, then, then I'm not going to be able to rest at ease because there's still more enemies out there trying to get us. Now, the, the Bible never speaks to her motives. It never tells us her, her motives. I personally would lean towards it being preemptive for two reasons. Number one, it's going to make clear, in just a minute we'll read it, that on the second day of killing, they didn't spoil as well. If it is vindictive, then you would think that naturally that would overflow not just to let's make shish kebabs, let's kill more people, but that that would probably transfer over to and let's take all their stuff so their grandkids don't get it and rub it in their face and say, ha-ha, your business is mine now. Like if you're that vindictive, you, you would probably see that expressed in the money aspect, but you don't. You also see from the narrator's perspective that this is a good thing. The narrator is going to want us to celebrate this and to applaud this and to see this as rest for the people of God and actually as a good thing. So I I have a little bit of a beef with people that want to go super hard on she's just vindictive because I I think that it leans differently, although it can't be certain, if I'm honest, okay? But we know that Esther steps up and she says, here's my request, babe. If you want to know, I want another day and and I I want them to be publicly hung up. I want their cadavers to be displayed. Now, before you get too miffed at that part of it, let me just say, that was, I mean, you're talking about, you know, 400, 500 BC. That was very normative from then all the way, honestly, even to this day, that is still normative in the Middle East in some areas that we look at and say like, oh, you have public executions on, on Saturday, your holy day, and that's the day where you take them to the town square and you cut off their hands or you, you know, cut off their heads. We, we view that as like bizarre, but publicly executing criminals as a deterrent so that other people do not engage in the same behavior has been historically normative for a long time. And you don't have to go Bible to get that. I mean, you can go like wild, wild west not too many years ago, right? Podium, trap door, noose sort of stuff. Like, this has been very normal throughout history. I'm not saying I wish it was normal today. I'm pretty, honestly, I'm glad that we don't live stream, you know, uh, lethal injection. I, I think that's probably a good thing. I don't have a verse for that, but, but I'm, I'm kind of glad about that. But don't think that she's like crooked or maniacal or weird. It was very normal for someone who was, a criminal or had done wrong to be executed in this way to say, don't do that, right? Even Jesus' crucifixion from the Roman perspective was this way. They crucified him on, on the street outside of the city so that people who were coming into the city would see him. And we read about that in Matthew chapter number 27, that the people pass by and they wag their heads. They shake their heads and say, shouldn't have messed with Rome, man. What were you doing? Shouldn't, shouldn't have said that you were king, right? That, that, was, that, that was very normal. Jesus was even executed in that way. So please don't paint Esther into a corner of being some, some little perverse lady here who, you know, has, has these impulses and she, you know, secretly is a serial killer or something, okay? Very normal. But this, this is her request. And here's what the king says, 14. The king commanded it so to be done, and the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. So, all right, deal. Hang the sons, verse 15. 
for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day also on the month of Adar. So it's the next day, the 14th day, and they slew 300 men at Shushan. So apparently Esther's intelligence was right. If you take 800 total, 500 the first day, that means that 62% were the first day, that there was still 38%. There was still a big pocket of people, 300 men that still were planning to kill them and take over them and destroy them. And, and whether it was her intelligence or whether it was her intuition, whatever it was, uh, she knew this. And we are meant, the narrator intends for us to celebrate that there, were, there was a large group of people, the Jewish people, who were under an unjust sentence of death and that they are delivered from this and given life. And then there's another large group of people who are bitter, hostile enemies towards the Jews who are determined to annihilate them, and they are justly punished. That's the way the narrator puts it forth. But, end of the verse, on the prey they laid not their hand. Day one in the palace, didn't touch the plunder. Day two in the palace, didn't touch the plunder, okay? And it's going to say in a minute that in all the provinces, they didn't touch the plunder, and the message that's meant to be com communicated is very strong. Number one, don't misalign their motives, okay? They, why, why not take the plunder? Well, number one, because if we take the plunder, then people are going to step back and they, they could maybe question this. Or they could say, well, did you really have to kill them? Was it really self-defense? Was that really a threat? Maybe you were just greedy. Maybe you just wanted some money. Think about it. If you are a, a, a Jew that, that is maybe... Uh, lower class, you're, you're pretty poor, and you have five sons, legally now you have the opportunity to go kill one of the enemies, and apparently there's a lot of them, and whatever they have is yours. Business paid off, yours. You get a business. House done, constructed, paid off, yours. You get a house. Jewels, gold, whatever they have, right? If, if I'm someone that doesn't have a lot of means and I'm Jewish, man, this could, this could be a massive windfall. Forget inheritance from granddaddy or from mom or dad. Forget waiting around for that. I can, if I kill five of the enemies, five families, then, then I can have five businesses and five homes and five sets of treasure chests. Or, you know, I can have all of this. Yeah, you can, legally you can. And, and think of, if, if you're a Jewish person, okay, you eliminate your enemies. It's not like their business vanishes into thin air, right? It's not like their jewels just magically go away somebody's going to get them. Somebody's going to inherit all that wealth, right? Who's going to inherit it? Well, maybe their kids, you know, the five, six-year-old boy, maybe the grandkids. So now the children of my enemies are going to be resourced if I don't take it. Maybe they don't take it. Maybe it's just left there. And so now the looters and the, and the, and the grave robbers, they're going to come and they're going to plunder and they're going to take it. Why would I want all this wealth to fall into the, the kids of my enemies' hands? Why would I want all this wealth to fall into the, the looters' hands? Why would I give it to them? You can see how you could get this little internal defense lawyer who would start to convince you, you know what, it's probably better off for the people of God. It's probably better off for us if we just take it. I won't even spend it. You know, I'll just take it. I'll save it. Maybe I'll give it to the, to the temple treasury, right? But this was, if you remember the history of the book of Esther, Mordecai comes from the line of Saul, Haman comes from the line of Agag, and there's a, there's a whole chapter in the Bible dedicated to Saul and Agag that God said, Saul, I want you to eliminate them, but don't plunder them. Don't take their stuff, right? And Saul did not eliminate all of them. He kept Agag alive, and Saul plundered, and he took the best. And when Samuel the prophet came to call him out on it and said, Saul... You've disobeyed the voice of the Lord. 
Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. But to obey is better than sacrifice. When he called him out on it, Saul said, no, 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 I have pure motives. I'm going to use this for, for, for God. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice to God. I'm going to put in the temple. I'm gonna, this isn't for me. I'm not being selfish. And I don't know that the people of God are remembering this and transporting this into this day, but it is extremely likely that they are. And they're saying, no, I don't know who it's going to go to. I don't know if the kids are going to get it, the grandkids are going to get it, the leaders are going to get it. I don't know. All I know is we're not touching it. And what I want you to know as the people of God is that you don't have to be controlled by greed. There's an opportunity here legally for them to be greedy. There's an opportunity here for them to have a money grab for them to take. And you will, in your life, just like they did, you will have ways of obtaining wealth that are legal but are not ethical or right. There's a difference. You can legally get rich in many ways that are not moral or ethical. To start with, a good question to start with is, is it legal for me to do this? That's a good question to start with, but that is not the question to end with. Because you can legally produce pornography and get rich off of it, but it's not right. You can legally be an abortion doctor and abort babies, but that is not ethical or moral or right to earn money in that way. Right? You, you tracking with me? You can legally, in some parts of our, of our country, prostitute your body. You can legally be sue happy. I've met Christians that are sue happy who are constantly looking for a business or a person who has wealth. That, that, you know, they looked at me the wrong way, so now I'm going to sue them and I'm going to get money that way. Legally, you can do that stuff. Is it ethical? Is it right? No. You can legally be a, you know, a YouTuber or someone who's, who's a social media personality who has an overly inflated ego, to say the least, and is extremely prideful and boastful and arrogant. And you may get a whole lot of people to eat that up, and you may get a whole lot of clicks, and you may be able to advertise and sell a whole lot of stuff, but is that ethical for you just to be a proudful, boastful, arrogant person all the time? No. So you can't stop with, is it legal? You have to ask a follow-up question, is this ethical or is this moral? And if you don't ask the follow-up question, you will fall in, you'll be in danger of comporting yourselves in the world in such a way that you do stuff that's permissible from a legal perspective, but God, God is God's not okay with it. I don't know if God's okay with, with someone just keep on pouring until they get a little tipsy and they get more than tipsy. Now, now they're, well, now they're drunk. Well, now they're smashed. I, I, is God okay? Legally, you can, you can go bartend all you want. Is he okay with you? Just pour, 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 and allow them to, to get hammered? That's a fair question to ask, right? So you have to ask a follow-up question, is this ethical? Because God does not intend for you to worship your wealth or to be greedy or to let the wealth sit in the driver's seat and, and control everything. He, tends for you, he wants you to take your wealth and worship with it, right? Remember that whole conversation Jesus had about you can't serve God and mammon? You can't serve God and money? You're not going to serve both. One of them's in the driver's seat. Either you're going to worship God with your money or you're going to worship your money. And God intends for his people to worship with their money. Is God, is God against you having money, yes or no? Absolutely not. Is God against you making money? No. As your pastor, I would say, make a boatload of it. Just don't let it control you. Be, make a boatload, 
but do it ethically and then be a good steward who says, Lord, thank you that I've been able to make a boatload. Let me take this now and let me sow it back into my family and let me sow it back into my community and let me sow it into kingdom work and gospel ministry and be a good steward of what he's given you. That's what God intends for you to do. God's not against you having stuff. Last time I checked, his house was real sweet, okay? Like, I don't know if you've ever read the description of the new heaven that's coming down, but like, it's fancy, like it's real nice, okay? You can, sure you can take it too far and you can be pretentious, I know. But the, I, I don't think God's against you having things, but use those things for his glory, right? That's what God wants for his people. And there's a message here all through Esther chapter 9 that's meant to communicate, don't be greedy, don't be greedy, don't let money control you. Verse number 16. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. The other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together, and they stood for their lives, and they had, and this is such a key phrase you're going to see over and over now through the rest of the book, they had rest from their enemies. That because of this day and then because of the second day in the palace, now they can officially have rest from their enemies. And they slew of the foes 70 and 5,000. That's a lot of people. Around the kingdom, 75,000. That's, that's a sizable army in that day and age. Okay, 75,000 people is a lot. But they laid not their hands on the prey or they laid not their hands on the plunder, okay? So first day in the palace, didn't touch it. Second day in the palace, didn't touch it. Around the kingdom, what about the other 75,000? Didn't touch it. Verse 17, on the 13th day of the month of Dar and on the 14th day of the same rested they and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day thereof and on the 14th day thereof, and on the 15th day of the same, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. What it's saying is, around the kingdom, day 13, you know, warfare happens, day 14, feast, gladness. And the palace, they had that extra day of fighting. So they feast on day 15. It's a different day that they feast. Therefore, the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month of Dar, a day of gladness and feasting, and a good day, and of sending portions one to another. So they, what it's, Apparently, there was some sort of controversy at this point in time on what day should we celebrate? Do we celebrate on the 14th day? Do we celebrate on the 15th day? And there's not continuity amongst all the Jews around the world of what day they're celebrating. But nevertheless, there's this day of celebration, of gladness, of feasting. It even says that they send portions one to another, okay? Think Christmas cookie platters, right? You're exchanging your, your cookie platters. You're exchanging presents. I've, I think this could you know, be a biblical text to say in holidays, naturally you want to share gifts with each other, right? Christmas, is it Jesus' birthday? Yes. Should you, you know, go to church? Should you worship him, read the scriptures? Yes. Is it wrong to share presents with each other on Jesus' birthday on a holy day or a holiday? No, they did it in the Bible. It's, it, that's an okay thing to share presents with each other. But then, verse number 20, you're going to start to see, and I'm going to read this fast because it's going to recap like the whole book of Esther, Okay. I'm going to read this pretty quick, but we'll, we'll see what it means. So hang with me. Verse 20, this rescue is remembered. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Dar and the 15th day of the same yearly. So Mordecai decides, we don't know, this is maybe a year later, two years later, we're not sure, but apparently there's a confusion. When do we celebrate? The 14th day or the 15th day? We're celebrating on different days. So Mordecai's like, it's not either or, guys. Let's just do both. Let's just have a two-day festival and a two-day feast. And let's do it yearly, annually. Now notice as we read through this how, how 
firmly, it's going to press, do this, don't forget this, do this every year. It's just, it's all through the text. Verse number 22. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from morning unto a great day. So this is a great reversal. That they should make them days of feasting and joy and sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. So not only do they not take in, they give out. We're going to take this day and we're going to remember we weren't greedy, we were generous. We gave to each other, we gave to the poor. Awesome heartbeat. Verse 23, the Jews undertook to do as they had begun and as Mordecai had written unto them. So naturally, this kind of holiday just, it just kind of naturally established itself. They just... Man, we're saved from our enemies, so let's, let's have a party. But then Mordecai had commanded them and made it official, like, hey, let's, let's make this a thing. Like, let's make this official, okay? Verse number, where were we? You tell me, where were we? 24. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, the lot to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that this wicked device, which he had devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So it's just recapping the story. Wherefore they called these days Purim after the name of the pure. So the Jews still to this day celebrate roughly in the month of March, about a, a month before Passover, still celebrate the Feast of Purim. And it's called Purim because Haman had, had rolled the dice, the pure. He had cast those, so they, they, that's what the, why they call it that. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all as had uh, joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing, according to the point, appointed time, every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every family, in every province, in every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. So it says the same thing like 18 times. Every family, every generation, the people now, the people to come, the people that are proselytized and enjoying themselves to us, every time, annually, every year, every generation, don't let it fail, don't forget it, don't let it cease, just over and over. It's just saying the same thing. There's, there should be a universal, uh, the Jews should celebrate this day of Thanksgiving, and it should be a high priority for the people of God, is what it's saying. And in case that wasn't enough, or like enough, do it, do it, do it. There's still more to come. Verse number 29. Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. All right? Ever made an appointment and then you got a follow-up reminder about your appointment? You made the appointment with the dentist a month ago and then two days before they call you. Don't forget, you have an appointment in two days, right? That's what this is. This is a follow-up. I know we started doing this, and I know we told you to do this, but then they send a second letter as a reminder and a memo to say, hey, FYI, we told you not to forget, but we're going to remind you, let's not forget. They're very diligent. Like, this should happen, right? Here we go. He sent letters into all the Jews to 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim and their times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of fasting and their cry and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim as it is written in the book. 
So there's a whole, it's a whole lot of verses just saying we're establishing a day of celebration. We are going to remember this, this day of salvation. Let's make sure we don't forget. And many people look at this portion and they say, man, Esther just feels so anticlimactic. It feels like a book that there's all this drama and this work and all these, these plot twists. And then I get to the end and I'm just reading like, do this day and here's this day and don't forget the day and do this day and, and you know, yawn. But this is not at all a yawn. What this is saying, if you take that, that whole passage and you just compress it, the big idea is that salvation would normatively lead to celebration, right? That these people are saved. They are under death and destruction. This is heavy, and God delivers them, and he saves them. And naturally, they began to celebrate it, and Mordecai and Esther find it to be imperative that they remember that they continually celebrate, and they never forget the day of salvation, that they never forget that they were delivered and that God took care of them. And so this is, is really what, what normally happens. Like This happens in our culture, too. If, let's say, someone is a war hero and they save lots of lives, that dominoes naturally for us into celebration, that we pin a medal of honor on their chest and we say, let us celebrate you. You saved people, so let's celebrate that, right? If a first responder saves a lot of people, they have their own medal of valor that they can get, that we pin on them. And let's say, in, in my group right now, okay, there is a, a, a young man in, in my group, one of the sons of, of the group members, who had leukemia uh, when he was three or four, and, and God delivered him out of that and went through a lot of treatment and, and now is healed from that. But five years have gone by, and just here about a month or two ago, got the official five-year mark, you're cancer-free, which if you've had cancer, you know the five-year mark is, is a lot. It means that there's less testing and less worry and less of a chance that it will come back. And we, because of COVID, we haven't been able to do it. But we as a group and they as a family are planning a cancer-free party, right? Which we would say, that sounds so normal. That sounds so normal that your life physically has been saved from leukemia, so let's have a party and let's celebrate that, right? Now, I hope that I don't have to connect the dots for you spiritually. I hope your brain has already gone there. But in case it hasn't, let me help you, okay? There, there are so many spiritual implications from this that we as, as God's people were under death and destruction and the threat of hell and God delivered us from that and God the Bible word is he saved us from our sins and he took that away from us so naturally salvation should lead to celebration right that's the way that it should go so this means that as the people of God number one we should move through our lives with joy with gladness that we should wake up every day and say you know what today his mercies are new and fresh every morning. Thank you, Jesus, right? In Jesus, there is an ocean of grace. There's wave after wave after wave of grace. And today, I can celebrate that although it may have been a year or two or 10 or 50 since you saved my soul, Jesus, I'm still grateful that you saved me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through life today joyously celebrating and remembering the fact that you saved me from my sin. So we should bring a joyous heart to the, to the table. There's an ancient uh, church saying that it's, it's not in the Bible, but it's been around the church for a long time. And the saying is, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. And that's a way of them saying, 
We were dead in our sins, and we got saved, so today we can be real happy about that mess, right? We can be real happy that Jesus saved us and that, and that he took us and that he cleaned us, that we should be people that are marked by joy. We should be people that are, that are marked by even sometimes our levity. We should be people that are able to laugh. We should be people that are able to have a good time, to let our hair down, right? I'm, I hope that next week we have a great party, and we have homecoming, and we have food, and we have a good time, and that we laugh, and that we play some, some yard games, and that we just hang out for a little while. Why? Because we're remembering, you know, the history of the church and Pastor Skelly. Yeah, that's part of it. But we're also just getting together as a church on Sunday and remembering that, you know what? Jesus has saved us. This, this certainly applies to communion. As we approach communion, I know people that approach communion exclusively as somber Jesus died, I want to remember that he gave a sacrifice with a tear in my eye. And that's appropriate. But it's also appropriate to approach communion as a celebration and to say, thank you. Like, this is awesome. Like, amazing grace, my chains are gone, right? Like, Jesus delivered me. We should come even into Sunday. I, I hope that you did this today, but I don't know. I can't speak for you. But if you didn't do it today, you get, a, you get another chance next Sunday, okay? We do this every single week. Why do we have church on Sunday? You know, there's no Bible verse that says you have to have church on Sunday, right? There's, that doesn't exist. It does say that you should be the church. It does say that you should regularly assemble. None of them say Sunday. But churches all around the world have celebrated on Sunday very normatively. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, right? It's not just an annual celebration that on Easter we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. It is a weekly remembrance and celebration that as we come into church on Sunday, we remember Jesus got up out of the grave on Sunday and defeated death, hell, and sin for us. And we celebrate that. So I hope, I hope, I hope. I hope, number one, that you're glad that you're saved. If you're glad that you're saved, say amen. I believe you. But I hope you bring that heart even into church. And I think you do a good job of this. I'm not complaining at you or griping at you at all. But I hope that we can remember that when we come into church, we bring this heart. When we sing, we sing with, the Bible says, grace in our hearts, right? That we should be happy. Does it mean that you can never sing a somber song? I'm not saying that. But it means that by and large, we're happy and we're joyous and we're remembering the grace of God and we're happy. So if you're thinking like troll world, think, you know, Queen Poppy in that troll village, right? We should bring happiness. If that doesn't apply to you and you're like, I don't understand that, just think Psalms 100 to 150, okay? Just go read them. There's a lot of praise and joy and gladness that we as the people of God should bring into the community of God as we assemble as the people of God. So if, if, you, if you are someone that's like, you know, Pastor, I'm saved and I'm glad, but my face never shows it, okay? Let your face show it occasionally. If you think, Pastor, you know what, I get it, but every church needs at least three good curmudgeons. So I'm just going to be, I, I volunteer to be one of them. Stop it, okay? Be glad in Jesus. Salvation leads to celebration. That's the point. And we should celebrate and have a good time all the time because Jesus saved us. We should be as glad as the tomb is empty, all right? It's empty. Last three verses. Here we are. Chapter 10, last chapter, last three verses. Let's read them together. And King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. Great, you tax people, okay? And all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai wherein the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So what this is saying is the king actually declared the greatness of Mordecai. 
which if you remember Xerxes, that's unusual. Like he's a, a power-hungry, glory-hungry kind of guy. But he declares how great Mordecai is. And, and the commentator here says, look, all these things are recorded elsewhere. Like, this is a true story. I didn't make this up. This isn't fiction. You can check this against history books. Verse number three, for Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. What this is saying, it ends the book on saying, you know what, Mordecai became great. And he became great, not because of his seniority, but because he was a champion for the people. He became great because he lived for their benefit. He became great because he lived for, for their peace. Mordecai understood that the last would be first. And Mordecai served other people, and he was great because of it. Now, I'm, I'm out of time this morning, but in closing, I, I want you to see one final thing. I just want you to see, and I'm going to take my jacket off because I'm, I'm dying up here today. I want you to see the scope and sequence of chapters 9 and 10, okay? If you take chapters 9 and 10, we just covered a lot, 35 verses, and you kind of lay out the, the big picture, what you have is a dark night, this day, this 12th month, 13th day, this, this dark day. Then you have a great reversal. The enemies are defeated. Then they have rest from their enemies. They celebrate their salvation. The man responsible for the salvation is exalted, and all the people benefit from his exaltation. Now, I'm going to repeat that one more time, but I want you to, I want you to hear the words. Because I'm, well, I'm laying out the scope and sequence of chapters 9 and 10, but I'm laying out the scope and sequence of the gospel. Okay? You find this dark day, great reversal, the enemies are defeated, rest from the enemies, celebrate the salvation, the man responsible for salvation is exalted, and then that exaltation leads to the benefit of all the people. All right, that's, that's the gospel. Because once upon a time, there was a dark day. It started with Judas' betrayal, and it ended with Jesus being hung on a cross in which the sky literally went dark. But that dark day was followed very quickly by a great reversal. It wasn't that day or the next day, but on the third day, this dead, buried Jesus got out of the grave and rose from the dead and turned the tables on sin, death, and hell, right? The, the scriptures literally teach us that had the enemies of Jesus known that this reversal was going to happen, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have known what Jesus had up his sleeve and that he was going to reverse it on them, then they would not have put it to death. But he raises from the dead, and in so doing, Colossians tells us that Jesus spoils the principalities and the powers, and he makes a show of them openly. He publicly triumphs over them, and he, he triumphs in, in this matter. And now the enemy is defeated, right? As the people of God, we now know that the sting of death is, is, is the sting of sin is gone, right? The, the, the grave and what death has to hold on us, it, it's gone, that the Son of God was made manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil and take those away, and now we enjoy rest from our enemies, that under the lordship of King Jesus, we as his people, yes, we look forward to the day where we will experience incredible victory over sin and over death and over the devil, but we get a foretaste today. We don't just look and say, we will gorge ourselves on victory one day. We say, yes, that's true, but we're getting appetizers this morning. That today I can have victory over my sin, and today the devil doesn't have to control my life, and he's no longer my father, and, and I know what the future holds. I know it's not in question. I know that I will have a resurrected body, and so 
we celebrate our salvation. When we get together as a church, we celebrate. We also look forward to this marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to celebrate and have joy and have feasting and gladness like we've never known before when we celebrate King Jesus. And the man responsible for the salvation becomes greater in the people's eyes. The Jesus, according to Philippians 2, that humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, is the one that God has also highly exalted and given him a name above every name. And it's at that name of Jesus that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow and confess Jesus, right? And so we understand that the name of Jesus and the fame of Jesus and the glory of Jesus becomes greater and greater and greater and we perpetuate that, but we also understand that we will benefit from his exaltation, that we as the people of God are made literally joint heirs with Jesus, that we will rule and reign with him. And yes, he got a resurrected body, but we're going to get one too. And yes, he, he's the one that defeated death, but we will defeat death too. And the glory that he has, John tells us we will share in that glory. And so we conclude the book of Esther understanding the big scope and sequence of this book is the scope and, and sequence of salvation and history in Jesus that we as his people look forward to the day where we will share in all of this forever and ever and ever and our praise will go on unceasingly in the great name of Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to celebrate you and to joy in you and just to, to thank you for being so awesome. Thank you for flexing your muscles and being true to your promises in 474 B.C., God. But thank you that you're the same God that we can trust in and rest in today, that you have and will flex your muscles on our behalf, that you will keep your promises to us, that you are the one who saves us and we celebrate you and we exalt you, but we also are so glad that you let us share in some of this. You are so unbelievably good to us. Thank you, God, for, for your salvation in our lives. We love you, and Jesus, we praise your name. Amen.